0: Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And the title of today's episode is, Can Homosexuals Be Christian? Well, I've seen a lot of conservative Christians recently arguing that gays cannot be saved or cannot be Christian, specifically because of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. And Paul writes there that saying, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, even if one agrees that these verses directly address everyday homosexuality, which I don't, I hope that after looking at the actual text, we could reach agreement that what it says they cannot do is inherit the kingdom of God, not that they can't be saved or be a Christian. Nothing in that verse talks about eternal life or the destiny of the soul and the spirit. And I think there's a critical difference there that's worth talking about, no matter how we feel about the acceptability of homosexuality to God. First, let's consider what inherit the kingdom of God might be talking about. For one thing, Jesus constantly referred to the kingdom of God already having arrived and being actively present among his listeners at that very time. He never referred to it in the future tense, and in numerous parables he said, the kingdom is like, instead of saying the kingdom will be like. Matthew twelve twenty-eight says that the kingdom has come among you, or upon you. Uh, Luke seventeen twenty-one says, it is in your midst. Luke 12.32 says, The Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Note that has been, not will be. Perhaps the most famous passage that helped create the doctrine of being born again, the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, says that nobody can see the kingdom in John 3.3. Not nobody will see, but nobody can see the kingdom. And that's present tense. The kingdom's already here. The question is whether we can see it. So participation in the kingdom isn't some future thing when we die, and in fact I feel that anyone who believes that it's only in heaven after our death is really missing an amazing opportunity to participate in God's kingdom right here on earth during our lifetimes. Having then established that the kingdom is not just future, let's consider the word inherit. What does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, an inheritance is very specifically something that's passed along to a beneficiary upon the death of the one either who left it in their will or who was properly related to that deceased individual if a formal will wasn't written. Jesus has now already died and been raised from the dead. When he was speaking these things, he was referring to an event yet to come, his upcoming death. He had not yet died, so what was his was not yet ready to be given to his heirs. Now, however, he has died— and we have now been designated as his heirs. And this naturally indicates that what he had for us has been given, has already been given as an inheritance. And that thing is the kingdom. It's not a future transfer either. That would be to place the inheritance in a trust. But that is not what the scriptures say. And in fact, the concept of a trust is in scripture in Galatians 4, 1 through 2, where it talks about a guardian assigned until the heir comes of age. But nothing about our inheritance in Christ uses such language. Our inheritance is apparently full and immediate. So this phrase, inherit the kingdom, refers to a present inheritance of an existing active kingdom based on the legal fact of Jesus' death and burial and our relationship to him. His resurrection simply confirmed the truth of his words and demonstrated to mankind and the spirit realm alike that his inheritance had in fact been given as he said. So next we ought to discuss what salvation really means, since we're talking about kingdom of God versus the, the being saved versus being a Christian. Well, salvation, to anyone who was listening to Jesus or reading Paul's letters in biblical times, was a very here and now, on the earth, in your present body kind of thing. There's no evidence that Jesus was referring directly to eternal life any time he used the word saved other perhaps than a few statements that those who persist until the end will be saved. In other verses, he did refer to eternal life, but the two cannot be conflated simply for our convenience in interpreting 1 Corinthians 6. His gospel, or his good news, was about ministry to his listeners' present needs, not to their eternal destiny. And in fact, in his time, the Jewish faith, which, remember, was Jesus' own faith, had only a minimal concept of the afterlife, and that actually was largely borrowed from Greek and Roman philosophy. Ancient Jews believed that after death, there really was nothing, either reward or punishment, just a dim gray nothingness. The current evangelical focus on salvation from hell did not really take hold until four or five centuries after Jesus' life. Note that the naysayers watching Jesus die in Matthew 27, 42 said, Well, he saved others. He cannot save himself. They were fully aware that salvation referred to healing and provision and rescue from human and demonic oppression. Their statement had not a single bit of focus on eternal life. And in Acts 2.40, Peter, preaching to the crowd, said that they could be saved from this crooked generation, not saved from eternal punishment. It's easy to twist that into meaning saved out from, but that's not what the text says. It says saved from this current generation. This also explains how in Acts 11 and Acts 16, salvation upon an entire household was proclaimed based on the faith of the head of household alone. Well, how can this be if the other members of that household had not personally placed their faith in Jesus, noting then that individual salvation based on a personal belief is the typical evangelical formula for salvation? Similarly, 1 Corinthians 7.14 describes even unbelieving family members being saved by their spouse's belief. This makes much more sense if you understand salvation as earthly deliverance from a wide range of oppression or harm, where in fact the change coming to a household leader literally would save all the members of that household. And this was actually prefigured by Noah's entire family being saved on the earth due to Noah's faithfulness to believe God and build the ark or Rahab's faithfulness to help Joshua's spies, which resulted in the salvation of her entire family from destruction. Nowhere are Noah's wife and children, or Rahab's husband and children, and of course all their family slaves and and household servants, ever honored for participating in that faithfulness or belief. They were simply saved by proxy via those household leaders. So Jesus and his followers were not particularly focused on the future of their souls, When they referenced salvation, their focus was on the earthly life of those who put their faith in Christ. Now, this doesn't deny the eternal change that comes with salvation, to which Jesus often referred. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant by saved. So, finally, if eternal salvation of the soul isn't necessarily the issue in either inherit the kingdom or be saved, what makes one a Christian, Well, there are a ton of definitions about what Christian means, so let's consider some of the most common. If your fundamental definition of to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, well, anyone can follow Christ, even if they still have sin in their heart or their actions. Many were described in the Gospels as being Jesus' followers, until at some point they all abandoned him in the final hours of his life. Even the most faithful apostles ran away, but were still commended for their faith, And even Peter was specially honored, despite repeatedly cursing like a sailor and swearing that he was not a follower. So a follower abandoning Jesus is not evidence that they're not a true follower. And if you define following as obeying Jesus' commands, well, I'd ask, how is practicing homosexuality, if it is a sin, different than, for example, not following Jesus' numerous other commandments, such as going into all the earth to make disciples, which no modern Christians actually do, or very few, or not fully following his commands about giving to anyone who asks instead of only giving to those that we deem worthy of our welfare, or not doing all the things that Jesus did based on the statement that, quote, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Not a single one of us even comes close to meeting any of those standards just the standards that Jesus set in the Sermon on the Mount, for that matter, to say nothing of the rest of his teaching in all the Gospels. We all fall short, and often willfully. If we're honest, we like our comfort more than meeting all of Jesus' commands. So how, how is the sin of sexuality or homosexuality any different? Well, perhaps your definition of Christian is primarily to represent Christ on the earth. Well, again, not one of us can claim to do that fully, even if it's our full, heartfelt intent. Perhaps it's to have a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. Well, I wonder about your relationship with your children. Even if they don't always do what you say, I presume you still have a personal, intimate relationship with them. Similarly, Christ loved us while we were yet sinners, and I'm pretty sure that our sin, or nothing else, can separate us from his love. First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I know plenty of gays that have very close personal relationships with Jesus, despite anyone else's opinion of their lifestyle. Speaking of propitiation, perhaps your definition of Christianity is forgiven for our sins. Well, that work was completed on the cross, period, full stop, completed. Our acceptance of that work is not at play here. As he died, Jesus said, it is finished. John nineteen twenty-eight through 30 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, did you catch that? All things already been fulfilled. It most definitely does not say, had been fulfilled, but only for those who accepted it. It's just, had been fulfilled already. But if you believe that a personal acceptance of Jesus' work on the cross is still required, then perhaps being a Christian is about being justified by God through our personal faith in Jesus, and therefore being declared not guilty. Well, fine, but that doesn't say anything about sexual behavior or really any other sin. Someone who the Lord has not convicted in their heart that a certain behavior is sinful, who truly believes with all their being that they are made right before God by Jesus' sacrifice, no matter how incomplete that may be, and reminder, what we talked about above, where none of us meet that standard. Someone who believes that is justified by faith. Period. End of story. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8.13, Paul specifically addresses those who are weak in their faith and how we should not presume to change that fact, but to honor their weakness by showing them grace. Now, it's definitely true that working out of our salvation and the Holy Spirit convicting of us of our remaining sin that needs to be changed is a lifelong process for all of us, but that doesn't mean that we're not already justified by faith. It's already accomplished. It's critical to realize that nothing about being saved or being a Christian is dependent upon our current status or behavior. There are so many verses that talk about our salvation being accomplished and being complete and being solely dependent upon Christ's work on our behalf. Now, of course, God does not intend to leave us in a sinful, immature, incomplete state. In fact, it says otherwise in verses like 2 Corinthians 8, 6, and of course, Uh, Philemon 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't stop, but it's going to be completed. And how could any of this be otherwise when every single one of us was saved or became a Christian or began the process of inheriting the kingdom, quote, while we were yet sinners? To believe otherwise is to cast off the idea that from Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not one. In light of this simple fact, how can we not fully accept and believe that anyone can be saved no matter their current state? Yeah, we might point to an area of sin in their lives, which we all have at varying levels as saved Christians, and we know that the Lord has yet to complete his good work in them. But it certainly cannot be used to insist that they're not saved or not a Christian. The only one who can make that assessment is God himself, and our standards are often deficient. Why else would we be told, judge not lest ye be judged, by Jesus himself in Matthew seven one, God knows our inability to judge with full awareness, and he wishes to spare us the punishment for false accusations and false witness against those who truly are our brothers and sisters, even if we can't tell. So, to summarize, for all these reasons, I cannot accept the statement that gays cannot be Christian any more than I would accept that someone who commits adultery or who lies or who verbally abuses their spouse or idolizes their job or their possessions, is not a Christian. What it means is that the Holy Spirit still has work to do to bring them to maturity, and sometimes more than others. So let's stop the not-a-Christian language, because it's simply not supported by Scripture. In fact, I'd argue that rejecting anyone's relationship with Jesus and therefore excluding them from fellowship is a frighteningly effective way to prevent them from ever being changed, because they won't be around other more mature believers and see the right way to live. I'm sure someone's going to say, well, but 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5 says to deliver such a sexually immoral sinner to Satan to destroy his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Well, let's be precise. That was a specific case to which Paul was referring, of a kind of evil sexuality that was even beyond that committed by the Gentiles, who, in other places, were specifically named as practicing homosexuality. Clearly, Paul was addressing sexual perversion that went far beyond homosexuality. It wasn't a general command regarding all sexual sin. And that's good, because if we summarily kicked out all of the, hmm, porn users, lustful individuals, divorced, remarried couples in our midst... Well, look at the statistics. Far more than half of our church pews would be empty the next Sunday, because about 40% have been divorced or remarried, and 65% use porn at least monthly. That's Christians. And yes, the following verses in 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, say not to have association with fellow believers that insist on sexual immorality. Okay, well, let's take that at face value. If that's your view, then this immediately destroys the argument that a sexual sinner— and in the case of this discussion, gay, that a sexual sinner is not Christian. Paul is very explicitly acknowledging that there are believers who are sexually immoral. So this seems pretty clear, despite what Paul says in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, which we started with, they are believers. Furthermore, if you must insist that they're not believers or not saved, then consider that in the same few verses... Paul explicitly says not to reject fellowship with, quote, outsiders who are sexually immoral people of the world. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the greedy and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Okay, so if you want to insist that the homosexuals are not Christian believers, then you're actually told by Paul that you should not break fellowship with them. In fact, it's pretty obvious from the language in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10 that Paul was actually correcting an excessive application of his guidance in a previous letter. It looks like he was reigning in and correcting an excessive disfellowshipping that was happening in the church in Corinth. So you can't have it both ways. Either gays may be saved and believers and Christian, in which case you may break fellowship if you wish, hoping that God will convict them, Or if they're not saved, in which case you should not break fellowship with them. If you insist that they're not saved, then you'd better be willing to be a witness to them through continuing an active, loving relationship so that God has a chance to redeem them. But yelling at them about their lifestyle or identity and how you believe that God is sending them to hell is never going to bring them back to Jesus. If you're going to accept that gays can be believers, but you still feel the need to disfellowship them based on an unrepentant homosexual lifestyle, well, then perhaps God can help you understand about how it's possible for them to be saved, given 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. But my bet is that if you enter into a real friendly, loving relationship with a faithful, Jesus-loving gay person, even if it's outside church circles and thus not an issue from 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, I believe you'll quickly discover that your view about their lack of salvation is, well, ill-supported and unnecessarily judgmental. So, I have to take a moment here and share a story. I grew up in a very strongly anti-homosexual church culture, and I fully believed that it was not possible for a gay person to truly know God. However, a few years ago, through the circumstances of life and death, I had the chance to spend a number of hours talking with the son of a recently deceased close friend as we sorted through his mom's effects. I'd always known that the son was, well, different, flamboyant, and I kind of suspected gay, but I'd never really wanted to know because then I was afraid I'd have to reject him. If I didn't know he was gay, I could pretend he was just different. But at his mother's funeral, in his speech honoring his mother, he made a very careful mention of his homosexuality that left no doubt in anyone's mind. Well, we had to clean up his mom's house. As we sat together mourning her and dealing with this house full of both clutter and memories, we spent hours talking about his life and his husband of seven years, which he'd hidden from most of his acquaintances, and his relationship with God and how our anti-gay church had wounded and abandoned him decades ago. Aside from his testimony about those specifics, one thing that just struck me was, above all else, how scripturally grounded and deeply aware of his relationship with the Lord that this man was. And it was heartbreaking to me that he had to live out this relationship with God in secret for 20 years, with just a few people in our church who knew the truth, sworn to secrecy, of course, who were available to fully love and mentor him as he truly was. But despite these limitations, it was utterly clear to me that he was as saved and fully Christian as anyone else in our church. In fact, I've told others that I assess his maturity and awareness of scripture and his trust in the Lord as far above many other people with whom I spent time at the church. Literally, the only thing different about him was his utter conviction that his homosexuality was inherent and not wrong, and that after years of praying and trying to change based on the church's teachings before he finally accepted who he was and his relationship with the Lord was okay. So here are the implications of this story. More than anything I heard from society or from other affirming believers, this encounter with him convinced me that I was fundamentally wrong about homosexualities and Christianity. If I could see with my own eyes, and discern with my own spirit, that this gay man could experience a vibrant, living relationship with God, with plenty of evidence of the Holy Spirit being richly active in his life, I must be wrong to assert that he was unsaved or unchristian. And this set me on a path of doing my own studies of what the scriptures actually say, and just as importantly, why I could have been misinterpreting them so badly for so long. Ultimately, as I wrote about in October 2022 in my article, Becoming Affirming, I concluded that I had to take an affirming position, even though it went against my upbringing and my previous intellectual understandings. In this case, I was letting the scriptures transform me, very much to my discomfort, I might add not selecting an interpretation to fit my passions or to please others. And as I've stopped running away from the possibility of gay Christians, I've been able to see things I never saw before with evidence piling up of the righteousness of God truly expressed in the lives of numerous gay people. Well, your conclusions may differ, of course. You can assert that they're all fooling me and themselves and that they're hell-bound according to 1 Corinthians 6, and probably also that I'm convicting myself for publicly agreeing with them. But if you do, I'll bet that you're concluding that without having spent much time interacting with gay people, Jesus-loving gay people, with an open mind and spirit. And like I used to, you probably have a lot of preconceptions that blinded you to the reality of their lives and their spirituality. Perhaps, like me, you're even fearful of risking deep interactions with them lest it change your own mind or corrupt you somehow. As a relative said to me not long ago, no, that's not a step I'm willing to take. Let's not talk about this. But as for me, I'm finding an amazing amount of liberty and joy and peace in watching an entire community of people being increasingly welcomed by certain churches and Christians into the kingdom. Not that they were not already welcomed by the Lord, mind you but that increasingly their fellow Christians are admitting that, yes, they can be saved and be Christians and inherit the kingdom of heaven every bit as much as heterosexuals. And to me, it's yet more evidence of the amazing love and grace of God. Folks, I'm so glad that you're with me on this journey. I enjoy doing this regularly, and I hope you're getting some benefit out of it. If you can, I'd appreciate it if you'd go on whatever your podcast source is, give us a positive rating, and share this with your friends. I'd love to see more people get this information. Be blessed, and we'll talk again soon.